what happens when you look at creativity through the lens of therapy and vice versa? You have creativity in an ever-changing world with Dr. Judy Bloom and Richard Skipper. In every episode, they come together with amazing artists who prove that with just a little ingenuity, we are all creative beings and that the gifts lie within despite the challenges of the outside world. And now, here are Dr. Judy Bloom and Richard Skipper. Almost. <laughs> here we are. Happy Thursday, Judy. How are you? I'm good. How are you, Richard? I'm doing fine. It's been one of those days of glitches and all kinds of crazy things. I know that Mercury is no longer in retrograde, but we, exactly. are, in the, <laughs> we are in the shadow. Uh, Sherry Callahan is watching. Uh, she's our resident astrologer, and she will tell us we are in the shadow of Mercury retrograde. Uh, so yeah. that's where we are right now. <laughs> so who or what are you celebrating today? Uh, well, it's National Popcorn Day, so I have I've got my popcorn ready for later. <laughs> I love the fact that it's Skinny Girl popcorn. Skinny Girl popcorn, right? <laughs> we will have our popcorn tonight. Uh, are you watching anything? Or are you binge watching anything that you highly recommend? Um, we've we've been binge watching lately. Uh, Three Pines. Uh, which I, I like quite a lot. I like mysteries. I like. Oh, I'm I do a too. Mystery fan. I'm. I'm Have you I'm seen Glass also, Onion? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw Glass Onion. Exactly. Um, I'm reading, uh, you know, a Michael Connelly book right now, Trunk Music. So I, I like those kind of kind of uh, books. Those are fun. Well, I've been watching a real life mystery, but it's not really a mystery. Um, I've been watching the Netflix series on Madoff. Uh huh. Yeah, we started that one also. Right. I have several friends who were unfortunately victims of Madoff and uh, they are uh, now, uh, so, you know, they're having, you know, all kinds of yeah. uh, issues with that. Uh, but uh, I hope that everyone can hear me. I see a private message from uh, Tony who's waiting in the wings that he can't hear me, but obviously Judy, you can hear me. There you and, go. I, uh, and Sherry Callahan can hear me. So, um, I don't know what's happening, uh, Tony, but hopefully when I bring you on, you'll be able to hear me. That's my hope. Um, but anyway, today we're going to be talking about a very interesting subject. Uh, and uh, I wanted to talk about this based on our two guests today. Um, first of all, uh, a guest that uh, you know very well, um, Thomas Quinn. What do you do with the chocolate Jesus? That is the age-old question, and we've been wondering about that for a long time. Right. And then uh, our other guest, uh, Tony uh, Roberts, has a wonderful book out uh, called Between Me and God, uh, Conversations with God. And when I think about God, higher consciousness, mm -hmm. higher power, Buddha, mm -hmm. uh, whatever you prefer to call it, it seems to elicit with a lot of people a lot of responses, mm -hmm. uh, both positive and negative, regardless of whether you are religious or not religious or spiritual or not spiritual. And I've had a lot of thoughts that have been running through my head as I've been thinking about today's show about this. I really want to uh, talk about creativity and God because to me, they are one and the same. Uh, that's the way that I look at it. I consider myself a very spiritual being. Uh, and uh, I'd like to get your thoughts, you know, from where you come from on everything. Yeah, I, I, I definitely consider myself more of a spiritual um, person. I'm not a religious person. Uh, I was brought up, but my parents were different religions. So mm -hmm. I was, and, and as my mother said, they argued about lots of things Religion was never one of them. <laughs> you know? um, and they felt that the only fair thing was to expose me to as many different religious ideals and beliefs and uh, texts uh, as humanly possible so that I could make my own mind up. And because I grew up outside of New York City, that was very easy to do. They took me to every conceivable you know, uh, denomination of uh, religious belief 
that was available in New York City. So I, by the time I was 12, I knew about Sikhism and Jainism, and, you know, <laughs> as well as Hinduism and Buddhism and all the different kinds of Juda Judaism and Christianity. Um, and I'd go and I'd get into arguments with whoever was the spiritual leader because I'd say, yeah, but so-and-so told me this, right? You know, how does that fit in with what you're talking about now? <laughs> when it comes to religion, to me, they all go down the same path. And yeah. that is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But what you just described is something that uh, I, and I, I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, is really an anomaly for most people living on this planet. Uh, I grew up in South Carolina. I grew up knowing only about the Methodist church. Uh, I, my parents were not religious at all. My grandparents were, and I was very close with my paternal grandparents. So sitting in the front pew with my grandfather on Sunday, he was an elder in the church, was a big deal for me. Uh, and then when we were a little older and we moved, the interesting thing, and maybe our guest can have a little uh, insight on this, or maybe you will too, uh, I lived right next door to a church. And so I would get up every morning and I would go to church. Uh, and uh, that was my thing. And I loved being a part of that. Uh, and now, as you know, I live, right. I live across the street from two churches, you know, and uh and I, you know, I've lived here in this house uh, for uh, going on now 34 years. I have never been a really religious person, although spiritual. Um, and I did a Christmas concert this past Christmas. And as a result of doing this Christmas concert and really feeling a sense of the community, I've started going back to church. And it going there on Sunday morning, it's a very small congregation. I know everybody in the church uh -huh. um, it, and, it, and I'm really based on what I'm learning about myself. It's just a chance for me to go in and it's a real meditative thing for me. Uh -huh. I just go in, I sit and I'm not even singing out with the hymns and everything. I'm just meditating and drinking it all in and uh -huh. taking that hour in church. And then afterwards there's a fellowship uh, of uh, a coffee hour uh, of just taking that time just to decompress the week that I just had. And I'm thinking about the week ahead. Yeah. And especially the kinds of churches that are right. Since I do know where, where, what you're talking about, where you are, they're, they're small, they're historic, they're, you know, it's, it's a very different kind of a feel than like the mega churches. Yes. <laughs> yes. Exist, right. Um, and I know what you're talking about. I, I like, Christian side was also Methodist, coincidentally. Uh, so I used to go to church with my with my grandmother on that side of the family um, and experience the same thing, you know, and then contrast that with going to a temple with my mother's my mother's mother <laughs> uh, and you know, really seeing the similarities and the differences in terms of just what it felt like being in those environments as much as anything else. And, you know, in this church that I, is um, very ecumenical, and I love that. But again, growing up in South Carolina, um, the churches, I mean, I left South Carolina when I, in 1979. And I don't know what things are like now in South Carolina. Uh, this That was 34 years ago. Uh, uh, well, I mean, no, 40, 40 uh, years ago. But when I left South Carolina, our churches were still segregated. Ooh. And so the first time that I walked into a church that was so integrated in New York City, um, that was at 18 years of age, that was the first time that I ever experienced that. Wow. Isn't that amazing? I mean, how just historically how far we've come in really a very short period of time. We have a lot more to go, but we, we certainly Absolutely. have to walk. Well, um, as this month is, and I can't believe this, we're already careening towards the end of January. All this month, for those of you who followed the show and uh, Richard Skipper Celebrates and uh, this show, Creativity in the Age of uh, In an Ever-Changing World, uh, we are celebrating uh, National Book Blitz Month. Uh, our encouragement, uh, Judy already mentioned that she's reading a mystery 
I love to read and I am constantly reading. I take a good book to bed every night and I read at least 10 pages before I turn the lights off each night. So I encourage all of you who are watching the show today, if you were able to purchase these books, to check these authors out, to learn a little bit more about them, to really be proactive beyond just viewing this show today, that would be good for all concerned. Um, and I'm going to begin before we bring our first guest on uh, to ask you, Judy, the mm -hmm. age old question. What do you do with the chocolate Jesus? <laughs> well, isn't that the question? <laughs> no, no one except for my husband, Thomas Quinn, can answer that better. <laughs> well, he wasn't your husband the first time he was on this show. I'm so glad he's back. And Thomas, I, first of all, welcome back to the show. It's good to be here. Yes. And what I love about this book um, I don't even think of it as an irreverent look at religion, but just a different way of looking at religion okay. and opening your eyes to religion uh, and looking at all religions and spirituality and modalities. Where did that begin for you? Well, I mean, I, I was raised in, uh, you know, sort of standard issue, pedestrian, Protestant, middle class home. Uh, you know, we were, you know, we celebrated uh, Easter with eggs and Christmas with trees and gifts and so forth. And yeah, there was this Jesus guy sort of responsible for it. Um, but um, we were not deeply religious. My mother was Catholic, but she wasn't a fanatic about it. And, uh, uh, you know, I grew up that way and really didn't get into the interest in that sort of thing until I graduated college. In college, I was kind of a seeker and tried Buddhist chanting and, you know, New Age metaphysics and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it was after college that I decided to explore just conventional religion and the Bible and so forth. And I went through kind of a born again experience for about a year, just plunged into it with both feet. And it was very unlike me, uh, partially because they wanted you to get up early in the morning and uh, partly partially because uh, uh, I was always a kind of a more scientific, skeptical, logical bent. And um, I went through this period and came out of it. Uh, it was very educational and kind of made a 20 five-year career of just sort of reading and learning and eventually it all built up and I had to write a book about it. Well, what do you think it was that pulled you towards that born-again experience at that moment in your life? Well, I was young. I was right out of college. I was in San Francisco. I had just moved there uh, from the Midwest. And so it was just like a, a universe of difference. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was basically by myself. I didn't have much money. I was living in the Tenderloin. Uh, and so, you know, you sort of start just exploring where you are and who you are at that point. You know, you're not yet fully formed. And uh, I always like to ask a lot of the big questions and uh, thought that, uh, well, gee, if I'm going to, you know, pursue all this new age stuff and all these other things I had pursued, you know, there's this big conventional thing out there that everybody talks about. What about that? Because I didn't really get a lot of that growing up. You know, I had uh, maybe a year of uh, Sunday school <laughs> when I was in eighth grade, but that was it. And it didn't really take you know, because by the time I, by the time they sent me to Sunday school, I was 12 years old and they started talking about Noah and Moses and parting the Red Sea and all that. And I thought, well, but you're talking like this, like it really happened, you know, and to it me, I, Hollywood. Huh? <laughs> it does in Hollywood. <laughs> it does indeed. But, uh, you know, it just, to me, it, it, it always just seemed like more like Aesop's fables, you know, they were good moral ta tales that taught you how to behave and not cheat on your math tests and whatever. And, um, you know, I just, um, you know, pursued that, but then got more and more serious with it as the years went by and became more and more fascinated with the history. I've always been a history buff. Uh, and so I became fascinated with the fact that what we often heard on television and giving lip service from the pulpit is often very different from what's actually in scripture. And normally I wouldn't care, except that when people start passing laws to enforce this concept of what is right and wrong, it's time to take a close look at this concept of right and wrong. Let's where were you getting your stuff from and just how credible is it? And so I decided to take a look at that with the book and being from Jersey and being a wise ass, I had to do it as a Jersey wise ass, which was just being honest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a particularly spiritual person. I'm one of the few people who actually says that. Mm -hmm. um, I could, when I think of the word spiritual, I kind of take it literally. 
if you mean, do I reflect on things? Do I think about the uh, you know great imponderables and my mortality and morality? Sure, I do that a lot. I probably do that more than most people because I write a lot about these things. Um, but you know, when I think of spiritual, I think of disembodied entities, ghosts, demons, gods, real things that are out there. You know, that don't have bodies. I don't buy into that. Uh, and so that's the part of it. The philosophy part and the history part are fascinating. The metaphysical and sort of fantasy part of it, I find entertaining at best. Well, I want to go back to something that you just said, um, you know, talking about religion. And this is one of the one of the things that uh, Tony mentions in his book that I want to talk about in a few moments. Uh, there are some people who have never even cracked open the Bible, who were the most pious spiritual, well, religious people on the planet. And then there are people who can go around spouting religious Bible verses who are some of the nastiest, meanest people on the planet. We've all encountered those people. Um, But it's not only the fact that sometimes people come along and they want to take their religious beliefs and impose them on the rest of the world. But as you're going through this transformation yourself, whether it be becoming a Buddhist and chanting or going through the born again experience or whatever that is, when you're going through this on your own path, whether it be a religious path or a spiritual path, the way that people respond to you is very different as well. So as you were going through your born again experience, how were people around you who have known you your entire lives responding to that experience that you're going through? Well, in a way, that was part of the reason why I was able to be uh, do the born again thing. I was in San Francisco where there was no family, no friends, no anybody that I knew. So there were not the traditional boundaries that defined me. You know, uh, as we all know, San Francisco is a place where a lot of people go to break free of the bounds that uh, their uh, hometown put on them. Mm-hmm. And so that was the place. And, uh, you know, I didn't do it in the usual way they did it for San Francisco in the late 70s. But, uh, you know, I had my own way of my own path. And by the way, I don't I'm not anti-religious in the sense that um, I never try to talk somebody out of their religious beliefs. Uh, if they work for you, if they make you feel comfortable, statistics show religious people live longer and they're happier. God knows why, but they are. And uh, God knows why. <laughs> and uh, heaven knows. But yes. they, um, you know, so I never try to talk them out of it. You know, the way they cross the line is where you want to impose, where you want to replace fact with, with fiction or want to impose law where there ought to be just good suggestions. And, uh, you know, that that's where I, I draw the line. But up until then, if it works for you, I'm fine. To me, religious diversity, and I don't mean just within the Christian faith, but, you know, Amish and Mennonites and Buddhists and Hindus and the varieties of all those religions uh, and, and religions that don't even, you know, make it on the charts to me, it's fascinating. They make life and certainly television much more fascinating. And, uh, you know, I've made shows about that. I'm a writer producer for documentaries on Discovery Channel and those those guys. And so we did a few shows about that, learned a lot that way as well. And so to me, it's all fascinating the way people pursue these these uh, spiritual questions or these great unanswered questions. And if it works for you, if it, if it, if it's your way of of understanding the universe or framing things, that's that's perfectly fine. I stick with it. Stick with your guns. There's so few things in this world that work. If it works for you, go for it. Um, but when you're asking me to buy a certain event in history as as real, or tell me that evolution is a communist plot, or you know this kind of stuff, then uh, I have to come back at you with with what are they called uh, facts, and uh, you know that happens. And I, I would, I would agree. What, what, what riles me is when people have that sort of holier than thou attitude, right? Yeah, well, it's literally holier than thou, isn't it? Literally holier um, than thou. And exactly. that's kind of part of the trick. Yeah, Richard, you were saying before about how you, you know, people who are so pious and yet they, they seem the least Christian people you've ever met. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think this is a the phenomenon I've run across in a lot. You know, where the people who are supposed to be the most devout are in fact the least Christ-like, you know, people that I run into. And I think what happens an awful lot is people who they have their ideas, their beliefs, their standards or whatever, and they want to root it in their religion and their faith. And so they adopt whatever vision of God happens to suit them. 
they're not conforming to God's eternal truth. They found a God that fits all of their truths, you know, and that way when they believe in something, it's not just their opinion, it's God Almighty's opinion. And so therefore you can't disagree with me because it's not just me, it's the creator of the universe. Now, personally, if I thought the, the creator of the universe really had my back, I would not get nearly so upset as these people do. Because, you know, if some guy like me, if they want to criticize my book, who are you compared to the, you know, you know God of the universe? Mm -hmm. Don't sweat it. And so why do you have to pass laws and enforce things on people when the creator of the entire universe has got it handled? I don't believe they really believe that. I don't believe they're very secure in their faith. I think they're just having a bunch of balled up, old fashioned, futzy dutzy attitudes. And they want to say, well, Jesus said so. And half the time, Jesus never said so. But uh, they don't bother looking that up. Well, they just use it to justify what they believe. Well, I will say this, and then we're going to bring our next guest on. Uh, as someone who is, I can, again, I will uh, consider myself spiritual, and perhaps there are the ghosts and all those. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But um, I. What's that behind you? Uh, oh, no, nothing. Uh, well, uh, you know, probably Carol Channing. She follows me around. <laughs> um, but the, the thing is that um, I, I absolutely, anyone who knows me, I'm a cockeyed optimist. I am hopeful. I try to look at the good in everybody that I meet. I try to be as positive as I can be uh, with, uh, in terms of the way that I live my day-to-day -day, uh, livings. And I think that what you were describing, Thomas, is a lot of those people live in constant fear. And if you live in fear, it's, you're, it's the fear of something bad is constantly going to happen. I remember, and well, I want to bring our next guest on because I don't want to keep him waiting. In. There's so much that I can talk about on this subject, and he is waiting here. I am so happy that, to see your face, Tony. Uh, welcome to the show. And your book, of course, is Between Me and God. The work that you're doing with your theater company uh, is phenomenal. Uh, I want to begin by asking you, uh, and this book is so powerful. Um, Hold up his book. I haven't seen it. it. It's called Between Me and God. I will bring up, uh, I will actually bring this up on screen. Oh, so okay, you great. There read, you go. Uh, my personal conversations with God. Um, it's one thing to have personal conversations with God, Tony. It's a completely different thing to put it on paper for the world to hear those conversations. Why did you make that decision to share your personal conversations with God with the rest of the world? And welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, my reason for this was that I feel so many people are in fear of being exposed. So many times if you look at that cover, it's like a mask. Many of us put a mask on and we're afraid to be who we really are. We'll act one way in front of everybody else, but behind closed doors, we act another way. So one of the things I wanted to do was say, okay, I'm going to expose myself. I'm going to put myself out there. No, no strings where I'm holding anything back. I'm going to curse. I'm going to keep it real. So everybody can see that you can be who you are and still have a relationship with God. You don't have to hide. You don't have to go by what society say, you know, and that's what I feel a lot of people do. So that now, was my equipment on paper. I and I is is this are all these conversations that you had with God? I mean, is everything of this book things that actually happened in your life? From first page to the last, everything. Crazy, right? As I <laughs> crazy is not the word. As I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, number one, am I reading um fiction? Am I reading the reality? I mean, you have been accused of murder. You yes. have been accused of crimes. You have been, uh, so many things. And your faith has gotten you through these things. Uh, you have held steadfast. You have questioned your faith. You have questioned why God has put you in certain uh, situations. When I was reading about your childhood and what, I mean, you could have gone in a completely different direction, Tony. Yes. Uh, and God bless the fact that you didn't. Uh, yeah. But uh, just an amazing story. This would make an incredible movie. Yeah, that's that's what I hear. That's you see my shirt chosen. 
Yes. Frozen. <laughs> and and again, you know, to be falsely accused of a crime, you know you didn't do. But see, I have a saying, sometimes God has to take the wheel because we sometimes can destruct and destroy ourselves. So sitting in that cell, and the first thing I do, like most of us, my, I didn't do this. And her response was, give it to God. And I say, hell with God. And I slam the phone on my mother. And I'm sitting there and days are going by. And I'm like, these people going to convict me for a crime I know nothing about. God comes to the cell. Get your stuff. Where am I going? Home. They made a mistake. It wasn't you. But the unfortunate thing, Tony, is that there are so many people that are sitting in cells right now, convicted of crimes that they did not commit. Um, and, uh, and I'm just asking this as a hypothetical question. What are your thoughts about those people who are in that situation where it feels like God has forsaken them, where the, they are sitting there, where the rest of the world is not listening to them, and they are absolutely innocent? How do you reach those people? And what is your message to everyone who's listening? They have to keep faith. No matter what, stay true to your belief. When you know you didn't do it, don't, oh, I'm going to take this probation because I'll get to go home. Or oh, I'm going to do this because of this. You have to keep your faith. That's the only thing that got me through. I mean, you know, as you read that book and you see coming up through childhood, you know, and me working with kids, it was my way of saying, if anybody can reach these kids, I can. I don't just have the degree. I have the experiences. Things that didn't make the book that just recently happened to me. 2020, March 1st, I moved to Georgia. January the 11th, my son takes six gunshots to the head, no suspects. Oh, my God. Ugh. I have another son who's gay. Some people don't want to accept my son. His church is out here that will turn their back. But my son knows I love him. Mm. So you're, how did you maintain that whole faith after your son was killed? I'm going to tell you the truth. I never dealt with it. Mm. Never. I didn't go. Well, you know, Judy, if I can interrupt for just a moment, because this is also in the book, and you also had a daughter that, you know, cool. you know, was, you know, very, I mean, died right after birth. Um, so you've dealt with such loss in your life. Um, but what, and I want you to get back to Judy's question, but you also have stepped outside of your own body to put your focus, and that's the word of the day, everyone, your focus on other kids and keeping them on the right path. Just like yourself, Richard, I love what you're doing. You're giving a platform to people that don't get it. People won't acknowledge you. And sometimes we take it like, well, wow. And, and what I'm doing, does it even matter? The people that do the Oops. most work never get the recognition. You'll see some people are thousands of thousands and millions of dollars and do nothing. People like yourself who put in that groundwork sometimes don't get recognized. So for me, I like to talk to the students and share my story. Like when I read up on Dr. Bloom and I saw mental health, I said, interesting. Hmm. The question I keep asking is, why is mental health not a part of the school curriculum? I, I would agree. Why mm. is parenting not a mandatory course? When you read my book and you see what I've dealt with from elementary school, middle school, if I had some type of curriculum to teach me how to deal with it, I make a process it more. We would have less suicides, mm -hmm. less kids feeling alone. But for some reason, right. and I've been in education for a long time, I just wonder why we never put mental health as a curriculum. I couldn't agree more. And, you know, especially since COVID, there's been a lot more uh, attention paid to the anxiety and depression among especially teenagers. Uh, and how many fall through the cracks uh, and wind up committing suicide or acting out in dangerous ways 
because of that, because they're not getting recognized and they're not getting the help that they need. And, and yet, you know, budgets keep getting cut back and cut back and cut back. So it, it, it is, it's crazy. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And especially it doesn't make even make economic sense in the long term. So it is crazy. I do want you, though, to address the question, because I think it's an important one about how you have been able to maintain your faith. What's happened? So when my son was murdered, I was ridiculed. Uh, His mother just died seven months prior. She had Mm -hmm. a She leaves my son all of this. He gets murdered. I couldn't go to the funeral to see him in the casket. My brothers were all there. My mother, other family members. I just couldn't pull myself to do it. And the question I keep asking is this. I look in the mirror every day. Mm -hmm. I have friends of mine. Won't you go see a therapist? I can afford it. So that's the question. Why won't I see a therapist? Mm-hmm. You, you see what I'm saying? So technically, right. I'm not, it's like, I'm not really dealing with it. It's like I'm masking it. That's why when you look at that cover, it's, it's masked. I come out, I smile. My students, Hey, Mr. You know, we, we all been there. We put the smile on. Most people. Of people don't know what you're dealing with. You know, like my, for instance, my son, and I have never had a conversation about his sexual preference. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, because my mother's brother, my mother's sister, it's the norm. Mm-hmm. You have kids who feel so pressured. I got to live up to my father's. Can you imagine how many students I've come across in high school from other nationality come to school in a dress? go in the bathroom, put the baseball cap on and change their clothes. And I'm like, wow. And then they talk again. It goes back to these kids have no outlet unless you have a, as they say, IIP or something like that. But so many kids that's dealing with trauma and we looking at murders. Baltimore city has 300 plus murders a year. A seven year old kid just got shot in his head and murdered. Since I've been here since March of 2020, three of my male students have been gunned down. Wow. And then on the flip side of this, a six-year-old go up ahead walking into a classroom and shooting a teacher. And guess what? Here's my question. I asked everybody, where did the gun come from? How is this six-year-old able to know how to use it? Mm -hmm. it? And, And what do we do with teachers? Underpaid teachers, underpaid police, and we take funding away from the arts. Yes, thank you. Thank you for and saying We have that. all these experts who know everything. I have a question for you, Judy. Um, the, uh, I think that, you know, in our culture, uh, and this will probably sound redundant, but um, I think there's still a stigma, a big st- stigma about mental illness and people do not want to address it head on. Um, Practically every other commercial on TV is a pharmaceutical ad about dealing with some form of uh, mental illness mm-hmm. um, that, a, that a medication is going to take care of that. Right. And yet the root is not being addressed. Uh, I'd like your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, and medication alone is not sufficient. Um, and all the studies have shown that, that you know, medication can definitely help with certain kinds of disorders, depending on the disorder. Now, it doesn't help everything. Um, but depending on the disorder, sometimes medication is very helpful. But it's not, not in a vacuum. You have to combine that with therapy. Psychiatrists don't do, do therapy. Psychiatrists today, they, they can't afford to, literally, I mean, in, ter- in terms of what their patient loads are mm-hmm. like. Um, so psychiatrists are, are, have become psychopharmacologists, really, and we do the therapy. Um, and that's really important. I, I work with a lot of psychiatrists. Uh, and it's really important to have that um, when you are faced with any kind of mental disorder. Um, to, and to really understand that it, you know, it's, there's no magic pill. Um, by the same token, not everybody needs medication, uh, you know. Most of the people I work with aren't on medic on medication at all because they really don't need to be. 
Um, there are, you know, because if you work with a good therapist, you can get to the roots of the problems and really take a good look at what's going on inside of yourself and what your belief system is like and how that influences how you feel as well as your behaviors and begin to make the changes that you need to make in your own life, which is under your control. Uh, and that isn't medication dependent. So I think that that's a really important message that, that people need to hear. Well, I don't know if the rest of you are picking up on this of what's going on here in New York, but almost every single day, um, and this has been going on for uh, uh, months, actually, uh, two to three buses arrive every night at midnight, and they are packed with migrants that are getting off these buses, and mm -hmm. they have nowhere to go. Mm -hmm. And most, uh, you see these uh, families, these are people uh, whether you want to call them immigrants, migrants, aliens, whatever you want, they are people, and there are children. Right. Um, they are children uh, that are going to be brought up in a city that is saying, we don't want you. And they are hearing this on a daily basis. We don't want you. We don't want you. We don't want you. What is that doing psychologically to these children that are growing up in this world? And then they're going to end up on the streets. And this it, it's almost a vicious cycle that doesn't seem to end. Where do we go with all this? Tom, I think you should weigh in on some of this. Because it's, it's, <laughs> well, uh, you know, in, in a way, twas ever thus, you know. I mean, when the Irish, you know, my ancestors came over. I'm a Quinn, so part of my ancestors came over during the Irish potato famine in the 1840s. And, you know, back then, America was still a provincial English culture, basically. And uh, they added, they, you know, there were signs in the doors that said, uh, in the windows of shops that said, Irish and dogs may not enter, uh, you know, except for slaves. They were the lowest uh, rank on, in, and in fact, they were pitted against African-Americans for the worst jobs. You know, they were both. The only thing lower shows. were actors. Um, I said yes, the only right. thing lower were actors. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but, you know, they were they were hated and they thought, oh, they're Catholic and the alien religion, alien language. Well, they'll never be able to be in part of American society. Twenty years later, they were cops and mayors and whatever. And then the Italians started coming in. That was the other half of my family. And uh, the Irish didn't want the Italians. And so, you know, and then a generation later, they started marrying them and uh, including my dad and my mom. And so, and then, you know, then the Jews came and Germans came and then Vietnamese and Koreans and then Muslims and, and um, you know, it, it, every generation now it's Mexicans and Latin Americans. Uh, and, you know, we've always had uh, these waves and whichever wave came in, they were always despised by the people who are already here, even they were, even if they were descended from immigrants themselves. Um, you know, and the, the, the two groups that have the most uh, right to have an attitude are African-Americans and Native Americans. They've been here longer than anybody. And yet, you know, uh, just generation after generation of attitude. And it's just, you know, it's just one of those things. In Europe, you go to England, they have an attitude against Pakistanis because they have a lot of Pakistani immigrants. Uh, you know, in France. That's a great uh, book title, uh, Generations of Attitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. In France, they have Algeria. You know, I mean, just every they have everybody's got somebody they don't like coming into their country uh, because they're different. You know, they represent change, uh, and they don't want that change imposed upon them. I, you know, I think that's a universal fear. Well, maybe I'm an anomaly. I don't get it, but I don't understand, and I've never understood uh, prejudice against someone because of their skin color or because of their religious beliefs, or because of their sexuality, or because of their gender. I just can't wrap my head around it. And, you know, and the older I get, the more baffled I am by it. And I see it happening all around me, but I just cannot wrap my brain around it. I and think I it's, I, I just reach out, I think, I just quickie, uh, to, um, I think people, it's kind of a law of nature almost that, you know, creatures like creatures that are most like themselves. You see a flock of birds, they're all the same kind of bird, right? They're not 50 different kinds of birds. Uh, herds of elephants, zebras, whatever. And I think humans are the same way on an even more refined scale. People of a certain income level tend to congregate together. People of certain skin color tend to congregate. Certain language, certain religious belief, certain country of origin. 
whatever. And they just tend to, you know, con concentrate. And then, you know, people get more and more different as you get more more away from them. And uh, we have these different centers of comfort. And, and then because they don't know about the next group, there's conflict and there's, uh, there's disagreement often where there doesn't have to be. Well, the more diverse it is, the more I like it. Uh, Tony, I want to talk a, a, a little bit about your theater company. Um, and how did the theater company get started? And how have you been able to maintain this and keep it going in the midst of everything that's been going on in your life? So his, his was crazy. So when I got released on that murder charge, I got casted in the HBO show, The Wire, as an extra. I go to David Simon and say, hey, Mr. Simon, no disrespect to your writers. I would love to write for your show. He said, have you ever written before? I said, no. He stopped laughing at me. So me, I walk, I go to Morgan State University and I meet this woman who's an equity director on Broadway, rest her soul, who, who before she died, she got her doctorate, Dr. Shirley Bassfield Dunlap. My first day meeting her, she says, what are you doing for your senior project? I said, I'm a writing director. She says, what makes you think you can do it? I throw Tyler Perry name at her. Big mistake. She <laughs> said, you compare your work to that? But at the time, I didn't know about Tennessee Williams, August Wilson, until, you know, and then I said, I'm going to write this play, Voices, where it's going to be about these kids with voices. After the play, two weeks after the play, Diamond Williams gets murdered. 16-year-old student, 19-year-old kid slices her throat, blows his own brains out. Mm. Their lives was formed. I went to every school trying to get help. Nobody. And I said, I don't need no money. I just want to give back. You won't believe who gave me my stuff. The people that they despise the most in the inner city, the Baltimore City Police Department. <laughs> Had a sit down with me. Hey, tell us what you got, what you got going on. They would get vans and bring six schools into one school. I started teaching kids playwriting. Say, hey, what y'all want to talk about? They say, let's talk about homelessness. Everybody, I need you to come in with one page of something you've written. And then we put all that together. Boom, we got to play. And that's, that's how that came about. I've never received any funding. I've done everything as a volunteer. Never charged. Reached out to the mayor of Atlanta. Like I said, I've been here two years. I said, hey, you know, there's been like four kids just got murdered in Atlanta. Not in a, I'm talking about Atlantic Station upscale. 12 years old, 15, 14, 15. The 12-year-old kid, mother called the police and said, please lock my son up over 30 times. Man, we can't do nothing. He ends up getting murdered. Before this happened, I reached out to the mayor and I said, dude, I would love to have a sit down with you and try to help you. Mm -hmm. Somebody sent me the template email back. We apologize, the mayor can't make your event. Right. So like I said, what I've been doing is I send stuff out to schools or any community and say, hey, look, I get it, money tight. But when I was doing radio, Les Brown, motivational speaker said this to me. You know what your problem is, young man? You give it away. When you give it away, they don't respect you. Hmm. And at first, I didn't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I understand now. They will. They, you got some programs in Baltimore receiving ten million dollars that have been busted for drugs and guns, and they still getting funded. Why? You got a program like mine. They don't want to give up no money. It's all good. At the end of the day, I don't do this with nobody but them kids and God. That's it. I was one of them kids. I know what it's like to have that mother on crack. I know what it's like not to have a father in the household, no food. In Voices, they said, my subtitle, should kids be held responsible for their parents' actions? We don't get to pick and choose. Some people fortunate. You get both parents, they got degrees, they work. Mm -hmm. What happened? Going into a family where the father don't want nothing to do with you and the mother's on drugs. What are the odds? This is what we're dealing with. This is America. We don't put enough focus on it. 
We are underpaid teachers. We get rappers, athletes, entertainers. Millions. Hey, teacher, we need you to teach these kids in some of the worst neighborhoods. Take this $35,000. Come on, man. Even yeah. actors. Come on, man. What they giving actors? Come on, man. They don't pay. You don't give money to the people who put in the groundwork. That's right. That's right. And, and right now, our nurses are on strike in New York. They are overworked. They are underpaid. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they've got six or seven patients a day that they cannot take care of mm -hmm. in, the in the manner that they should be taken care of. And they just um, give a PPP money to all these organizations. I used to ask the nurses, have they given y'all a stipend, like five or 10000 just people in this work, dealing with all of this pandemic? No. What? Yeah, I know. Crazy. No, and that's why they're striking, too, is because they can't give the care. It's not because they just want more money. It's because they can't no. give the care yes. that they know they professionally are supposed to give. Yes. And they know that they can. Yeah. It's, it, it, it is literally unethical for them to keep doing what they're doing because they can't give sufficient level of care. And the first rule of medicine is do no harm. Right? right? The system's <laughs> threadbare. Yeah. And then there's so much red tape involved. The people that need the help, the people that should be getting the help. Uh, I had uh, a guest on my show a few months ago, and she works with uh, in the foster care system. And wow. she said, I don't care how you sugarcoat it, foster kids are orphans. We don't use that word anymore, right. but they're still orphans. Mm -hmm. And to get them the supplies they need, the help they need, uh, it's virtually impossible to do so because of the red tape involved. Well, and, and then they throw these foster kids out into society with, you know, it's like, okay, you turned 19, now you're not in the foster care system anymore. Okay. Good luck, right? <laughs> I mean, really, you know, with no skills, no well, family. I think that's something basically lacking in our overall education system. You were talking about it before. I always thought that, I mean, even as a kid, when I was in school, I thought that they never teach us basic life skills stuff. Mm -hmm. they, they they kind of go down that path a little bit when they teach things like wood shop or home economics. You know, they kind of, you know, give you a little bit of that. But, you know, they need to teach you, like, how to balance a checkbook, how to take out a mortgage, mm -hmm. how to apply, you know, how to apply for a college, how to get a car loan, you know, just just basic stuff that, you know, I don't know how, you know, how, you I know, have no idea how to do it. And, I get it um, better. Two years ago, I'm working at a high school in Baltimore. Do you know they took cursive writing out the school system and yes. kids out of yeah. sign the back of a yeah. check? We had Bank of America come in because we, we had a program where kids was working, getting paid. They didn't know how to sign the checks. Okay. There's no more cursive writing. Everything is printed. How do you sign something if you don't know cursive writing? Just print? You put an X? Well, I'll tell you something. When I was in the third grade, I had uh, my teacher hit me over to the knuckles because I was practicing cursive writing. And wow. she said I was getting ahead of the other kids at class. Oh my God. Yes. So there's a school in China. <laughs> <laughs> in South Carolina. No. So, and I never forgot that, but um, you're, most kids don't um, know this. Um, I, uh, you know, I had a doctor on uh, a couple of weeks ago and, you know, the fact that kids are in front of their computer screens um, they don't know how to research anymore because of Google. Uh, they don't know how to read a map anymore. Maps are obsolete. Uh, there are so many things that we take for granted in our culture. Um, those who know me, I've taken a sabbatical from Facebook uh, because I'm not even going there uh, you know, anymore. It's just uh, because I don't want to be part of that herd, uh, herd mentality anymore. Uh, and I think it's taking us down a very dangerous path that we are all going through, not just children, adults, everyone. And it's having a psychological impact on our culture. You go back to these kids that are killing each other. The reason they're killing each other, guns are a point of resolution now. It's not going out and sitting and having a conversation to try to figure out your differences, it's picking up a gun and shooting someone. Well, I don't, even, I, don't, I don't know that kids ever sat down and hashed out their differences, but they used to get in like good old fashioned fist fight if things that's true. got worse to worse. And, you know, it's like, okay, you know, you get a bloody nose or something like that. But the problem with, with the 
pervasiveness of guns is that it just lowers the threshold of anger somebody has to achieve to kill somebody. You know, it's it's that's why you get these stories of, you know, two idiots in a bar killing each other over a parking lot or a parking space or something. You know, it's not important. It's just that they're mad at each other. And at the moment, you know, it doesn't take that much anger to pull a trigger. If you don't have a weapon in your hand, it's very tough to strangle somebody to death. You know, it's just doesn't happen. You don't you don't find a lot of those kind of stories going on. And it's just because it's so easy and so so distant, you know, you, it removes you from the violence of what you're doing to some extent. Um, and that's the problem with the pervasiveness of guns. I, I have a question for you, Dr. Bloom. Mm -hmm. I was at a uh, symposium with some, it was a generation of 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. And they asked us all the same question. I just saw with a kid from Alabama basketball star shot and killed the young lady for not talking to him. The question I ask is, do you feel that the brains are not developed at that age to be able to know how to de-escalate a situation or even handle a situation? Because, you know, at my age, it's going to be different. I'm trying to avoid any type of confrontation whatsoever. But at a younger generation age, do you think that that has something to do with it? Well, absolutely. Our, you know, our brains are not fully developed. And we, and we also don't teach resolution skills. Mm. Again, another thing we need to teach in schools, you know. Yeah. Um, it, 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 and, you know, I, I, I just want to mention that, you know, fighting and weapons is nothing new, you know, uh, in history. Um, you know, it's certainly in, you know, West Side Story even, right? You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Or you know, look at Shakespeare, right? You know, but Judy, in, but don't you feel that the accessibility of them is different? I think the accessibility is is a huge problem, absolutely a huge problem. And you know, again, you know, look at things like what happened with Tony referenced earlier. The the you know the six year old, how did the, how did a six year old not only get a hold of a gun, but know how to use a gun, know to keep the gun hidden because knew that there was some reason that it wasn't okay to have this gun, right? You know, where, you know, where are the, who are these parents, you know, and who holds them accountable? But I, if yeah. I could address that and then excuse me for interrupting for a moment, but um, I was watching the other night on the news, um, the anger in that school. And interestingly enough, um, I performed in that school wow. when I was, uh, because I used to perform all over Virginia uh, mm -hmm. and I performed in Newport News. Uh, so I know that school. Um, it's what is very interesting is that the parents are very angry with good reason mm -hmm. that this is allowed to happen. From what I heard on the news the other night, this is the fourth shooting in that school district in the last year and a half. Oh my God. And, uh, and somebody's asleep at the wheel. Uh, yeah, someone's asleep at the wheel. But I don't think it's so much that they're asleep at the wheel is that they have not been trained in how to deal with it. And rather than having this vitriol and this anger and everyone coming at each other, why not bring someone like a Dr. Judy Bloom into the school to talk to the parents and the kids about how to address this? Why aren't therapist coming into the classrooms and sitting down and talking to these kids the way that we are talking right now. Why isn't that happening? Absolutely. And why does it take a shooting to make anything happen, right? You know, it, these are things that need to be addressed ahead of time. <laughs> you know, that goes back, back to, you know, what we were saying that the mental health, they don't even have nurses at, on campuses anymore. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy what, what, the schools have been decimated. Um, and, you it's know, Tony, like, it's looked at as a luxury, I think. Yeah, it's exactly not as a necessity. And it's absolutely a necessity, you know, but they're, you know, they keep cutting and cutting and cutting. They cut out, you know, uh, gym time, you know, which is important for kids, right? They, they, you know, I mean, again, they just keep cutting and cutting and cutting. And that teacher making 35,000 a year has to also go buy her own supplies for the classroom because they don't have enough supplies. It's crazy. It's really crazy. Well, I want to go back to something that Tony said earlier. I mean, it's very, very important what people 
I mean, those of you who are watching that are in the arts, and we all know this, when you are in community theater, uh, you learn very early on that it's not just about being in the spotlight. It's about a sense of community. It's working together for a collective uh, goal that you're all working opening night and everyone coming together. And the kids that are pulling the, the curtains, uh, that are uh, taking the tickets that are at the box office are just as important as the kid that's standing center stage. And that is taught in community theater and uh, in theaters all across the country. And yet you are absolutely right. The funding is the first thing to go. Um, Tony, I've got another question that I want to ask you, um, and then we're going to wrap everything up in a moment. Um, with this book, uh, that you are you able to convey these messages with your students? Yes. Uh, and what kind of response do you get from most of your students as a collective? I have some students who come like, Mr. Roberts, can I see you doing lunch? And we'll say, like I had one student, his mom was a crack addict. Mm -hmm. And he was being he was he was African American being raised by a white woman. Mother had nothing to do with him. And when I shared with him that my mother was on crack, mm -hmm. and this kid had this bond because he was like, he can relate. Mm -hmm. So this kid would go through these spurts of just acting out. So sharing my story, it has so many kids that'll come and open up. They might not open up in front of the other students, but they will come and open up. And one of the things I feel we drop the ball in the school system is in acting. I'll never forget my freshman year. I was in William Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bell said, Turbo, what did you eat for breakfast? And I'm thinking, oh, I was on the wire. I'm good. And I'm like, they don't talk about no breakfast in the script. But as an actor, you must know the backstory or create a backstory. The more we know about these kids, the better we can treat them and deal with them. But guess what? In the school system, there's the hippo act and this act. If you're not somebody like a Dr. Judy or somebody, you'll be a teacher like me confronting a student one day, say, where's your hall pass? He cusses me out. I didn't know this kid respects no men because he witnessed his father shoot his mother in the head. Yeah. Had I known that, I would have said to a female teacher, can you address him? But we hide everything. Everything is not open to teachers. So this is where them struggles come in at again. So I've got a question for both you, Tony, and then Thomas, and then we're going to wrap things up. Uh, when you write a book, uh, you put your heart and soul into it, and then you send it out into the world. Ultimately, what is your hope and your goal that you hope that people will get from reading your book? Uh, for me, I want students to understand that you can change. You don't have to be your circumstances of your upbringing. I want students to know you can write a book. You can share your story. You can get paid residuals. I want students to know you can be whatever you want to be. I have a book that's coming out, Pause, Process, and Proceed, that deals with life skills where it's different monologues. And at the end of every skit, there's five or six questions where they ask kids, how would you handle this? And this collective falls like the whole class. So all, everything I write is for the save the lives of these kids. Like I tell people, I'm a college graduate. I'm part of the fraternity of parents who's lost a child mm -hmm. to violence. See, some people don't know what that's like to lose a child. Like I tell them, if somebody kills your child, we, the child is supposed to bury us, you know? But when you deal with those things, you don't want that to weigh on another parent. So my goal in writing is to put my experiences on paper and hope that it reaches as many kids as possible. Tony, God bless you. And when your book comes out, come back on the show, please. Um, okay. I, uh, and I, I think I have talked about this on the show before. I don't know if I have or not. Um, I lost my sister-in-law to a murder-suicide. Um, and uh, so our family has been affected uh, very strongly by this as well. And uh, the person who did it was on heavy medication uh, when he uh, took her life. 
so God bless you and the work that you're doing. Don't go anywhere for a moment. Thomas, I want to hear from you as well. With your book, what is your ultimate goal that you hope that people will take from reading your book? Uh, I would hope they would take the idea that nobody has a monopoly on sacred truth. Uh, that uh, there's a lot of different ideas about it out there about uh, the great questions that, you know, as mere humans, we all ask and we, we have to face in our lives and things that get us through. Uh, we've heard a lot of that tonight. Um, and to, to, to realize there's no one way, that nobody knows it all, and to be able to separate the, the, the positive aspects of any religion or discipline or philosophy uh, from the mythological parts or, or this mere belief parts or the, the parts that are, are, are untrue. To be able to separate fact and fiction, I think if you stick with the facts, you can have plenty of faith. Uh, and that can get you through. And it's because it's based on fact, it's real. It's not based on a delusion. Well, well, thank you both for being here. I think this is probably one of our most fascinating discussions. Uh, wouldn't you agree, Judy, that we've had on this show? Uh, I, I had no idea what direction this show was going to take. I'm hearing from the comments over here uh, that uh, it's touched a lot of people. So thank you all for being here. Uh, but I'm going to give both of you uh, a chance to have your final word today. It could be about anything that we talked about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message that you want to leave everyone with today. Um, I will give my final word, then I'll turn it over to you, Tony, uh, then Thomas, and then uh, Judy. Uh, but basically, uh, what I want to say is, as I do each day, I pull a word that I focus on each day. And the word I pulled today was focus. And we need to focus not only on what's going on out there, but what's going on in here. And I think that we need to focus on how we respond to each other, how we respond to the circumstances that are going on in the world. Uh, you know, um, one of our guests uh, that was scheduled to be here today uh, was uh, Santos. At least he said he was going to be here, but I don't know if I could believe him or not. So um, he didn't show up. So I'm, you know, that's a joke. Uh, no, just pay attention to what's going on out there, everyone. Uh, it's interesting how we're all processing what's going on in the world. And I love what Thomas says uh, that just, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean your opinions, that they are facts and vice versa. We all need to have an open mind. We need to be able to have a discussion, a discourse, as we've all done today. And we all just need to pay attention to one another. Uh, and as I said at the beginning of the show, it's National Book Blitz Month. Uh, please read these books if you can. Um, I end every show by telling everyone to pick up the phone and call a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while. And I truly mean that now more than ever. I lost three friends last week, and I found out this morning that someone that I had not spoken to in a while had passed on. And it's very important that we pick up the phone, we call each other, and we let each other know how they matter in our lives. Order these books, send them out to your friends. Let them know that they matter in your life. Uh, as a friend of mine says, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. I say we're all in different sized boats. We're all in the same storm. Uh, some are in sailboats, some are in yachts, some are in canoes, some are pushing tugboats right up the stream. It doesn't matter what size boat you're in. Just make sure if you're in a boat that you bring a skipper along. And with that note, I'm going to leave and I'm going to turn it over to you, Tony. You are an amazing guest and you are welcome here anytime. Please Thank promise you. you'll stay in touch. Thank I you. will, definitely. Thank you. Uh, one of the things I want to say is the word process. My professor used to always say, enjoy the process. Don't expect things to happen overnight. We got to keep the faith and just keep pushing and trying to help as many people as we can and continue to show love. Dr. Bloom, you are very much needed in these schools. I don't know how we're going to get you in there, but we need you in Nashville. I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, Nashville, because again, these kids, that six-year-old will not be the last. Right. Unfortunately. I know. Unfortunately, he will not be the last. So yeah. he definitely, yeah, definitely. Well, Tony, so, just let me know how I can help. 
I'm there. Thank you. Uh, well, I guess it's my turn. And I guess I would say that the watchword that I think we need to pay more attention to these days is tolerance. Uh, the idea that, and this is true with our political atmosphere, with our social divides, with our religious uh, conflicts and so forth, is tolerance. Tolerance doesn't mean we live in a utopia where everybody loves each other and agrees with each other. Tolerance means living in a civil and respectful way with people you don't necessarily like or who have ideas that you don't necessarily like. But you allow for the diversity, you allow for the difference, you hash out your prob problems and, and differences as, as neighbors or in, through democratic government or whatever it is. But if there was just more tolerance and less coming from the gut, you know, and just sort of hold your horses, realize that everybody's not going to agree with you, and uh, coexist peacefully with people who you know you're never going to agree with. I think uh, that's a good habit we need to get into. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. And uh, along with that, just having an open mind, you know, understanding that we can all keep learning our entire lives. We can keep learning new things. And one of the best ways to learn is to read, read everything you can. I was one of those kids who'd read cereal boxes growing up. Point being, read magazines, read newspapers, read books, read articles, read whatever you can get your hands on. It, it doesn't have to cost you anything to read. There are public libraries everywhere. Um, there are uh, Amazon Prime. Uh, if you sub subscribe to that, they have monthly free books available for Kindles and whatnot. Um, there are things like BookBub, which offers free as well as very low cost books of all kinds. Uh, Chirp, if you want to just listen to books, there are things like Chirp where you can, again, listen to a book for $2, $5. It will broaden your mind. So instead of just watching television, not that I have anything against television or films, but instead of just spending all of your time watching, try reading. It will make you a far more interesting person to yourself as well as to everyone else. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you soon.